Hey, welcome back, everybody, for another fun Exodus uh, uh, edition of the Rolex Whiskey Passion Project. And the gentleman I have on the call today, uh, many, many, many of you will know, but to all you listeners who don't, he owns a one of the most famous bars in San Francisco. Um, I met him, I've met him three times in person, and the first time I actually went behind the scenes with, my, with our mutual friend, Corai, where he was pre-mixing up the project that he's a part of now, actually. You guys were making cocktails in the back. Um, without any need, I hand, hand it over to Mr. H from Elixir. H, I'd love you to introduce yourself, kind sir. Uh, hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, yeah, my name is H. Joseph Ehrman, and I am uh, a career barman. Um, I've owned Elixir now for, this is my 20th year. We just had our 19 year anniversary. Um, and Elixir is the second oldest saloon in San Francisco. It's been nothing but a saloon on that corner since 1858. Um, we're just a block from the Mission Dolores Church that was founded in 1775. And that neighborhood had no more than, um, wasn't a really neighborhood no more than 500 people living in that area until the gold rush around 1848 um so that period of 1848 to 1858 that 10 years um whether or not the bar is any older than 1858 i don't have proof but um that it, it was also where our corner was like the that our strip our side of the street was the the uh first commercial strip to be developed besides what was built next to the, the mission Dolores church. And so it was, if you picture like any old West movie, it was a big open field with just, you know, however many buildings and, and a church and a bunch of horses and wagons and, and rancheros. <laughs> so, and, and a nice high ceiling location that you have. Um, yeah, well, the, the, the first saloon burned down in 1907, along with the rest of the neighborhood in the city, and, or 1906. And, and so what we have now was built in 1907. But it was still Victorian, so, you know, and it's all original. I restored all of that when I bought it in 2003. H, tell me, what did 2003 look like, buying a, buying a, a saloon in San well, Fran? What's what? What's the market like? Who are the people? What, what, what are they doing? What are they drinking? It was, it was post.com, which was my situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, had been, uh, I had been director of international business development for a software company um, and lost that job along with 90% of the company. Um, I was a, you know, an, an out-of-work multilingual MBA and those were all the people who weren't getting hired. <laughs> um, the only people that kept their jobs in the dot-com fallout were the engineers um, and, you know, a percentage of them to boot. So uh, here I was with all this MBA debt and uh, no prospects for a job in what I was doing. Uh, but I had started my career or my, my adult working life as a cook in uh, 1986 and so I had worked in 18 different, 17 different bars and restaurants around the country by that time. Um, I was 35 at the time. 
And uh, so I just, just I, I got a job bartending. I helped the guy open a bar up in Pack Heights. And uh, after working for him for six months and, and banging my head against the wall uh, as to other things, I had started a soup company with a um, high school buddy of mine. And I was consulting, doing some marketing brand consulting to another high school buddy's tech company. And um, I just said, you know, this guy's making money hand over fist. Everybody was unemployed in San Francisco, but all the bars and coffee shops were full. And so I was like, man, this is the, I would always thought if I would ever bought, open a bar, it would be later in life. And so I was just like, this, this is the time everybody's drinking and I've got no other prospects. So I wrote a business plan. And, and what, and what are they drinking by the way? Like what, I mean, I was the pre- drink of choice in 2003. I mean, this is pre a lot of action. Yeah, this is pre mixology, if you will, pre, yeah. uh, you know, there were, it was still, it was just kind of like party drinks, lots of shots and beers. Um, there were no real fancy bars at, at the time that, I mean, there were some and I didn't, wasn't even all, all that aware of them, to be honest. I was. Um, and they were more like steakhouses, right? The steakhouses were the guys that had like a fancier lift. Yeah. And it would have been what, what yeah. you know what we thought of back then as fancy, which was just a, yeah. a, a martini or a Manhattan or an old fashioned yeah. classic drinks. There was some early stuff going on that I wasn't all that aware of until a couple of years later um, after I had opened, but like absinthe had, had, had doing, been doing some stuff early on and uh, Bix of course. And, you know, just a handful of things in, in San Francisco. So when I opened my idea from a, a business perspective was I had, of all the bars I had worked in, I was always most comfortable in neighborhood bars. And that was kind of what um, this guy was building, that the bar that I worked at. And so I wanted this idea of a a bar that was opened 365 that uh, I, you know, based on the business concept of build good systems and then hire good people to run those systems. And then you have a little engine that can make money. And I always looked at a neighborhood bar as key to any neighborhood as a little bodega on the you know corner store, a laundromat, a liquor store, all these things that make up a little neighborhood that you know people go to on a regular basis. And I also always compared it to like a, an engine. If you if you build, if you design an engine well and you maintain it, it like a BMW, it should run for a very long time, as long as you maintain it and stay on top of it. But it also has a maximum output of power. And so uh-huh. the size of the bar has a maximum capacity of people. It could only make so much money. But if you build it right and you run it well, it's, you should be able to make a certain amount of money every year. So my idea was get this thing going and then I can and, and get it running, and then I could step away, and I can go back to my international business career, and get a good salary, and travel the world while being an owner. Sure. Well, eighteen years later, I finally moved to Boise, <laughs> <laughs> and you have another cool project, which we'll get to later as well. Kind yeah, of like when I first met you in the back, mixing stuff in big buckets and trying different cocktails. I mean, I still yeah. remember that night. You know, very, very vividly (laughs) yeah my entrepreneurial sense never left me so i did you know what what a lot of bar owners do is once they open one bar they open another and another and and then they open a bunch because again each bar has maximum output so if you really want to make money and and margins are thin so 
if you really want to make money in the bar business, the key is to own several bars. But I got caught up in the whole early days of mixology because I was actually going to walk away because the bar wasn't making enough money for me. And I was, we were coming out of the, 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 bu- the dot-com bust and opportunities were opening. And I was like, all right, I'm going to give this one more year. If I can't make enough money, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go back to trying to leverage my MBA in the big corporate world. But, uh, and, and my effort was to just, I decided to do something really different and um, get rid of all of the artificial ingredients in my bar and start using my culinary background to make really good drinks and do, and, and not just be a shot and bar shot and beer kind of neighborhood bar. And it worked in six months. I, things completely turned around. I started getting press, um, press. Began. And what year is press. it? Just, just for, for historical purposes, what year is this roughly? 2005, early 2005. Oh, so within the first three years of you being open, you're ready. You're, you're pivoting into another level. Yeah. Yeah. And back then, you know, I was, a, I was a big tequila drinker and I was in the mission. So I was collecting tequila because I liked it. And so the center of the bar was, was then full of tequila. I had, and I had befriended Julio Bermejo and, and several other people and was really getting into tequila. And, and we were really a tequila bar at first. And even as I was building the cocktail program. But I, as the cocktail thing took off, I, uh, I I wasn't so concerned with having a mass collection of any one spirit. But I was really in. I was enjoying tequila. I was getting invited to distilleries in Mexico. You know, I mean, by the time I had decided to shift to whiskey, I had probably already been to 15, 20 distilleries in Mexico on three, four, five trips. Um, but the te- it was the cocktail thing that took off that really made the name for Elixir and drew people in at, in those early days of the, the modern c- cocktail revival. It wasn't until a few years into that that I was like, I don't want to fight this fight. Because it, it was I was spending a lot of, on PR. Um, mm-hmm. it, was, it was very worth it. I had When I finished my MBA, I went to Thunderbird in Arizona, an international program. And when I finished, I moved to Madrid and I lived there for a couple of years and working, worked for a PR firm. And so I learned PR in Spain. And the one thing I learned about it was in order to tell a story, you have to have a story to tell. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't really invest in PR until the cocktail thing took off. Then I was like, okay, now I have now I have a cocktail story to tell. And then I was at the same time, I had had been digging into the history of the bar for a few years. So I had a history story to tell. And as I started winning awards and was in magazines and newspapers and stuff, I realized what a grind it was. And I also saw at the time I was also building the Square One Organic Spirits brand as a brand ambassador and traveling the country. And um, I was in the green story. I was telling that story. We, We became the first certified green bar in the country. Um, so I had all these stories going, but the cocktail thing I saw as eventually becoming a grind. Like you, you, in order to be at the top of the game, you always have to be on top of it. And I wanted, I still had in my head that I wanted to, to make this business more of a, uh, you know, something that was sustainable uh, that I could eventually step away from a bit and do other things. And so my thought was nobody was really seeing Elixir as a tequila bar as much as I wanted them to. 
something about it being a tequila bar wasn't working. And I realized that I loved whiskey and an old West saloon and whiskey just seemed to go together better. So I literally just started collecting whiskey and, uh, and, and now we're and then historical purposes were what now 2007 ish 2008 or yeah earlier exactly. yeah yeah right okay. there. and uh, so so I mean so there's really nothing going I mean there's still really I mean there's nothing I mean there's a little there's drab drips and drabs a couple of single malts there's a couple of decent bourbons but I mean you're kind of you're hitting yeah. it at a really sweet spot where I would imagine all the distributors are coming to you and saying hey we got all these brands but no one's really buying it and you can kind of cherry pick based on your likings what you're going to curate yeah and as you know i was as the sales reps are bringing people by they're doing their work with and they're trying to push things you know i'm meeting everybody so this is like you know this is the early days of jim rutledge pushing mm-hmm. four roses out after after the japanese took hold of them and said yeah. he could do it you know and i got to be friends with jim like really friends, like calling on the cell phone, showing up and doing staff trainings when he was in town, you know, and Al Young coming in and the old, the old Four Roses crew would, would, you know, they'd come to town and they'd come to Elixir. And even, you know, uh, John Hansel and Amy Westlake, when, when whiskey advocate was malt advocate, they'd come to town and do whiskey fest and they'd hang out at Elixir the night before and invite all their friends to Elixir to chill out before the night before whiskey fest. And so I would meet all those people and, and then I would, you know, go visit them. And so it, as is anything in, in good business, it's all about people and relationships and, you know, and that gained access to cool stuff and education. And I was a geek for having been like, I really got into becoming a spirits geek by going to all those distilleries in Mexico. And and then we're representing Square One sent me around the country, which opened up other opportunities and got my name out there just as I was getting a lot of press. So I would go into a, into Chicago to sell vodka. But meanwhile, I'm on the cover of Nightclub and Bar magazine or, uh, or there's, you know, my 2008 GQ listed uh, my Bloody Mary as top 20 cocktails in America. So I'm, I'm rolling into town. And I'm getting this great press. I'm getting introduced to all the top people in all of these cities and that's opening doors. And so it was all, you know, it's all about right time, right place. Everything just kind of hit for me at the right time. And, and you've also got this passion. I mean, you're not just, I mean, obviously, like you said, you have this end plan that would be really nice. This thing's self-sustaining and you can go do other stuff and, you know, it's financially independent. But yep. at the end of the day, you're in this period where you're chasing passion and going like, Hey, I like this. I enjoy it. I'm my heart is invested in it and i'm yep. going to put the best stuff out there you know so now you go down this whiskey path and and you've got obviously you know like the whole four roses crew but you i mean you start to get almost everyone comes to visit you i would imagine at some point when they're in town because you're the place to be with the selection i mean you know that compass box i mean you know like i mean i, I i'm sure you could rattle off a million of them that have come and spent time there because of yep. what you've created yeah, exactly. You know, John Glazier, again, all these people are building their brands. John Glazier rolls into town and I'm like, what is this magic? <laughs> <You know? laughs> hey, Willy and, Wonka, what are you doing over there? Exactly. He's, like, like, he's like, I'm like, well, he's even he's earlier, doing... like if, 
in tequila and mezcal, like Ron Cooper from from Del Maguey comes in to sell me Del Maguey. And I, I didn't even know what mezcal was. Like most people, we didn't know what good mezcal was. And and here comes this hippy dippy 1960s artist being like, you know, Ron, I love Ron to death. He's like, hey man, you want to try some mezcal? And <laughs> I'm like, what is this? I haven't even heard of this. This stuff is magic. And it was like one brand after the other like that. Michter's, watching Michter's come up from, oh. I, I think the Michter's brand story is phenomenal. You know, coming from like rebuilding a brand to from from sourcing it to having it made, to building the distillery, to the quality that they're putting out today. I you, you know how close I am with them. I mean, Andrea was guest number one because like the minute I tried that and, and the story and everything and spending time with Joe, I'm like, you guys make something really special here. And it's passion and it's never money. Money's never the focus. It's all about just making the best, doing the best. Money's like a side effect. Oh, great. Hey, it, it performed well. But, you know, I was in their office, you know, right after the that show Billions when Wags walks off with the rest of the uh, the uh, Mictus celebration. And they're like, dude, the producer just really loved the product. There was nothing. Like he just, that was a product he chose to use. We yeah. didn't even know anything about it until after it was filmed. We had no say in it. You know, and, and I love those stories. So now you're going into whiskey and there's, you've got to choose like what you're going to have. And, it, and I can imagine it's, it's going off your palate and your excitement and, and your education, personal education, I would imagine. Yeah. You have a really highly curated list. It's not like, you know, it's definitely not your average, you know, what you have sitting in Elixir. There's, there's yeah. tremendous thought and, and excitement in there. And that's the benefit of time too, you know, like years of years of those meetings and each year buying each, not just each release, but estimating, you know, how much, how many bottles of this A can I get and B do I want to hold? And the payback payoff comes down the year, you know, I, and I, I guess I kind of knew it and, and, and planned it, but, it was a shot in the dark to be able to know that years later you come down and, you know, you'd, you'd walk in the door and be like, Holy cow, you have a bottle of the general. <laughs> yeah. Who has that? Like, you know, no, I mean, it was like, you, because I think a lot of people don't understand. I mean, obviously we, you know, I ran you know, before I got in, I did restaurants and nightclubs for 20 years. And like, you didn't have to, like you're saying, when you open, you didn't have to often offer variety. It was shots. It was craft cocktails. And it was the regular, like, you know, run of the mill. So when you were deciding what to buy for your for your nightclub or for your bar or for your restaurant, you're like, I just want commodity juice. Anything that's a commodity that people call for, I'll have a lot of it. Oh, all of this one-off stuff? Ugh, I don't know how much I want. Any, like, how long do I want to sit on the shelf and wonder if my bartenders are sneaking their own pours of it at night because they know it's something special, but the customer couldn't care. And it becomes a game. So you start amassing this whole thing. So when I walk in that first time, you know, I'm just like, oh, man. Oh, man. I'm like, where, where do we start over here? Yeah. <laughs> where do we start? And and it is, you know, I, if you're just walking in fresh off the street, it's a lot to take in. Yeah. And it's a small <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So here you are, like, what, five levels up, like, all around, everywhere. You just got whiskey, whiskey, whiskey. And I'm just like, wow. You know, and, and for you curating that, you know, and, and 
you know, I, I know you might have a drip and a drab of mainstream, but you really didn't like, you didn't, you didn't mess with, with the staple commodities. You, you took some risks, obviously, in your purchasing. Yeah, you know, the, I, I'd say the the big, yeah, I did, and, but it was calculated risk. Palette, you know, like yeah, a good that I, I, I tasted things and I, I bought what I, one, I bought, I bought things that I, that I liked, but I didn't want to just put out what I like. I, I tried to be as, as objective as I could about, just like when we design a cocktail menu, you want to make sure you have something for everybody. And so there would be things that would be like, okay, that's not my, to my palate, I wouldn't buy that, but I know that it's really well made and it'll sell. And so, or at least I think. And so, yeah, and some of those things were big risks, but in general, and, and, if, you know, also, I guess there's, there's a business sense too. You know, you look at something, you're like, okay, there's a good story here. Nobody knows this yet, but these guys have a good story. They're making good product. They're, they've got good graphic design or custom bottle mold or whatever it is. And I'm like, this thing's got legs and I'm going to take a chance on. It. And a lot of those pay because, because you're still in that stage, by the way, when it's, it's old fashions, <laughs> you yeah. know, like that's, that's what they're drinking whiskey. It's like, Hey, can I get an old fashioned? And you're like, Oh God, don't you want to actually try the whiskey on its own? Oh yeah. I'll do it with like 12 cubes of ice. Oh, okay. Hey, drink it however you want. It's fine. But they, you know what I've always found that magical moment is when the customer says, "Hey, tell me something. What else do you have?" And then you have this just huge landscape of product behind you. You know that obviously to a guy like me is is nuts, and I'm sure for you as you created it, <laughs> curated it, it's the same thing. Give me um, give me like a a fun whiskey experience. Like like for me personally, like. The first tasting I ever did at Mictors was with Joe, and I didn't know it was Joe because I'd never met him. So when I met these people in a room in New York, they just handed me business cards, and I was—I didn't want to like start reading all the business cards, so I just—I just put them in my pocket. And then I did this full tasting of Mictors, and I went out for, afterwards with some of the marketing team, and I was like, "See, that's like the best salesman I've ever met in my life." And and by the way, they didn't even tell me that it was Joe. Like they assumed I paid attention to the business card. So I go through this whole like two hours with Joe telling me about the wood and the whiskey and the history and everything. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing ever. This is the best sales guy I've ever met in my life. Like this guy needs a raise. Like he is perfect for the brand. And then I get done, go go out with the, with the girls, have a meal, go back to the hotel, pull the business cards out. And I'm like, oh man, Oy vey, that was Joe. <laughs> and I send an email. I'm like, dude, you did not have to spend three hours with me going through everything. He's like, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I'm like, you are a different person. Love you for that. I had a similar experience with, with Boston Beer Company. I went to Boston College and graduated in 91. And right around that 90, 91, I went and did a, a, a beer tour with Sam Adams and it was Jim Cook that gave the tour and I was, you know, I didn't know much about it. And later I'm like, that's the guy, you know, <laughs> read up on him. And all these years later, I'm actually working with, uh, in my mixer company, the fresh Victor, um, one of my, my counterparts, Sean love worked with Jim for 25 years and helped build Sam Adams. So we joke about that all the time. Yeah. So now, okay, let's go, let's go for a cool whiskey experience. Tell me, I mean, as, 
as you, I mean, you know, before Whiskey Fest in San Fran, you know, your place is an establishment to come the nights before. You have everyone that's coming in town for the show is coming to to you and hosting events. Generally, what seventy two hours before they start kind of rolling in and scheduling their time there. Yeah, we do that every year and have um, again since you know, I uh, they back when Malt Advocate was a nice little family run operation. <laughs> Um, you know, the, those guys used to treat me well. And, and like I said, they'd come and ha hang out and, and that was great. And it became this very fa family oriented kind of thing where now we, would, I always said the Thursday night before whiskey fest, we, uh, we call I call it the whiskey social and I don't promote it to customers as anything. It's more about getting the word out to the industry people that are in town. Cause like you said, they roll in maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, they do either distributor meetings or they go visit accounts. They take people out to dinner. Um, but I always tell everybody, like, you know, when you're done with all that, just come hang out at Elixir and mix and mingle with each other because the next day everybody's on. Everybody's working. Yeah. They, they go in. They set up their booth. They don't have time to talk to each other. But Thursday night's the night when they're like, you know, they can hang out and see each other. So you can never know who you're going to bump into on that night. And that's that's a, always a fun experience. And and just for you folks listening, like, you know, the, 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 the people that represent these brands, when they hit the town for a show and, you know, what H is saying, when they're on, they've already been on for 72 hours. They get taken around by their distributor, like a full on dog and pony show. Like, hey, you got to show up at this liquor store because they buy a ton of product. I want you to like take pictures with the husband, wife, parents, everything. Go to the next one. Go to the next one. Go to the next one. So like they're there and they haven't even got to the show yet. So they're already just like, oh, this has been a lot. So for them to have that just decompress the night before, it has, I mean, I've been there. I see how magical it is where they're just totally relaxed. They're either, you know, you walk up, you chat to somebody, they buy you, you know, you try something. This is what we have, you know, what age. And then they'll go like, okay, you know, a lot of these beer, a lot of these whiskey guys, they'll just want a pint of beer, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh. they just like, hey, man, like, I, I love what I do, but I need a break. You know, like, I, I've gone out with some of these guys and it's just champagne. They're like, I can't. Like, I just, you know, I love what I do and I do what I do, but I also need a, I need a personal moment. And you see them so relaxed at your establishment because it's personal time. They're not on. There's no expectation. It's just, hey, have a good time in a relaxed environment you sure don't have any expectations on them and it's just kind of become like a thing to come do and i love that yeah and i've got so many good memories of like so many cool like his actual historic moments that happened like i remember uh you know a long time ago um bill owens who started the american distilling institute or um adi asked me to come up to Petaluma and teach some people who are going to study how to make whiskey, how, teach them about whiskey cocktails. And, and in that class was Wes Henderson. And I met Wes. And then, you know, years later, Wes comes to the bar the night before Whiskey Fest with Lincoln. And John and Amy are sitting at a table and they had brought in some samples of a, of a whiskey. And they gave a sample to John and a sample to me. And we taste them, and it was the it was the first blends of Angel's Envy, and I got a, I got this pic I have this picture of me and Wes and Lincoln out in front of the sign, and uh, just last year I was in I took my lead bartender Nick to Kentucky for a tour, 
after just making him lead bartender. He had never been to Kentucky. So I took him on a tour and we went, I'd never seen the Angels Envy Distillery. And I went and we met up with Wes and he gave us a tour. And he told me that those samples he gave us that night, he and his dad just finalized the blend for Angels Envy in their hotel room just before coming to Elixir. Wow. He was like, those those were the very first blends. We just finalized the blend. And what you tasted were the very first samples of that before it went to market and what the final blend was. Then there was like, uh, I remember like uh, um, Lou Bryson working the door, like hanging out the front door and pretending to be the doorman all night, checking IDs. Uh, Gabe Lorenzo, God bless him, rest in peace, getting behind the bar that night, one of those nights and guest bartending. Jim Rutledge and the Four Roses crew bringing the whole Japanese um, C-suite team into the bar when they first came to the States. Well, it's, and it's interesting because you talk about the Four Roses crew. You know, my first Four Roses barrel pick was with Al. And yeah. Al, was, Al was, we were talking about like all the notes you pick up on, on, on bourbon in yeah. general. And let's just say hypothetically, there's 25 different notes that are characteristic of a bourbon. And he said when the Japanese crew came in, they brought the wine psalm in town. And the wine psalm has, you know, wine has their own characteristics and notes. So the yeah. two of them are drinking bourbon and the wine guy's like just throwing out notes. And I was like, oh my God, yeah, that totally could be. Yeah. Oh God. He's like, it was like a whole nother palette. And he's like, it was like, he's like, that was just an experience where I was like, man, it's whiskey really is whatever it is to you. Yeah. You know, because here I am like, quasi pre-programmed to these 25 things that I'm going to pick up. And here comes another person that has another 25 program for a whole different spirit. And we're drinking the, our whiskey. And he's like, Oh, I, I have some crossovers here. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, special time. And then tell so, okay. So obviously your compass box is, is, is a pretty significant. What was it with like John Glaser comes out and for you as H, you're like, this is something, this is something different. What's he doing here? Yeah, it was, you know, we're, uh, he, we just hit it off because he's just such a nice guy. Um, yeah. And we're about the same age and, and, you know, we just had, had great conversations and just tasting through, it, it was like the right time when I met him too, because I really had, had learned enough where I could break it down, you know, and when he, when he was his whole perspective on truth and information and, and, and mm -hmm. putting it all out there. It's, I, I'm and just, just for the list, just for the listeners, like, so all of the compass box recipes are published yeah. on the website. Like you can tell the breakdown of where he sourced it from, how much he put in, you know, a, a, everything. It's full transparency, which and, is very unique. I mean, I, you know, he just literally, you know, probably one of the best blenders in the world. Yeah, he broke, <laughs> broke the mold. I mean, he went against all the rules and kept pushing them over the years to to break them and change them. And he has. He's he's mm -hmm. a true maverick in that way, you know. And I'm a big advocate of education. I think, you know, as as a consultant for my consulting company, I, I created the consulting company on the idea of initially of like a lot of people did in the early days of cocktails, helping other people make great cocktails. But I did one other program for JW Marriott. And within six months, they completely changed the program. And I was like, that's ultimately unfulfilling for me. I don't want to do that kind of consulting work. I like to teach people. And I had this rare 
opportunity i've been invited to distilleries all over the world and i've I've studied distillation on a level that most distillers don't even get to do so i uh, that's where my consulting is focuses on professional beverage education and sharing that that knowledge and those opportunities and it's i couldn't do that if people like john didn't provide an openness to how they're doing it and what they're doing and and i because i said like in that you said early days of Going to Mexico, and again, my MBA was focused on doing business in other countries and and, and um, understanding international commerce. And I learned early on that you know there's a lot of lying, especially mm-hmm. in developing nations. There's a lot of lying about business. Oh yeah, we do this. Oh yeah, we do that. And I saw so much of that in Mexico. You go from one distillery to another, and 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 that was a, a lot of the the evolution of the tequila industry in the last decade and how it's so big now, there was all this push about not lying about your tequila, you know, being truthful about what you're using. You're using an autoclave, you're using a, a, you know, you're shredding your agave versus crushing it, or using open air fermentation versus closed. And and seeing the the truth of it in more whiskey was very refreshing. And now you, you see big changes in tequila and there's obviously been big pushes like tequila matchmaker that, that give, puts the information out there to, and uh, Lou got uh, Long Island Lou and his approach to showing people about tequila. And, and you get this, you're getting that you've kind of almost always gotten that not always in, in whiskey, but it's not that anybody in whiskey was ever really hiding as much. Although I would say actually the evolution of the American um, craft movement in the early days, there was a lot of that, like, T- telling people whether you're sourcing your whiskey or not and where you're sourcing it from. Oh, I mean, source, sourcing is still a big, you know, especially <laughs> some of the big guys, it's still a magical mystery. Where did you actually get that from? Yeah. yeah. But I think a lot of that mold has been broken now. And, yeah. and a lot of it has, is, was driven by a lot of the work that John Glazier did with Compass Box. And, and we're also in this new, you know, we're in an age now where, you know, people require that information. And they will go find it. So you can either put it out yourself or they can go find it and it may or may not benefit you. So I think it's also part of this like, well, you know, we didn't mean to be sneaky, but we're going to be less sneaky now. And I think with John from day one, it was never about being sneaky. He's like, I just want full open source as to what I'm doing. That's part of the fun. You know, I don't want you. I want you to actually enjoy what I make. And I'm going to tell you exactly how I did it. And, and you know, the, there's the there's the nerds or like you know I, I created a, a logo for elixir the elixir whiskey geeks I like to use that 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 whole concept of whiskey geek but you get them and there's tequila geeks and there's rum nerds are they're they're fanatical and they're crazy and these you know it in, in bourbon especially like yeah. you can't hide because they will come at you <laughs> oh and then and then especially now that it can be also publicly put out there you don't want to be that guy. You know, like it it doesn't end well, which I like that. It should be all. I mean, you know, I love the education. Obviously, I have my investment side of it. But for me, like with what I do as Rolex Whiskey, it's been more about like, can I help these brands that don't have billion dollar marketing campaigns, but make really amazing whiskey and have really amazing stories? Can I put it out there? So when you when you're deciding how to spend your hundred dollars, fifty dollars, two hundred dollars, whatever your budget is. I'm like, you should look there. Like they're doing it right. In my opinion, you know, in my opinion, they're doing everything. And, you know, as someone that doesn't drink 
you know, never drank to numb the pain. It was always for enjoyment. I get to drink some really cool stuff. So when yeah. I see something I like, I'm like, oh my God, the world needs to know about that one. Yeah. And those are the companies I like to work with. But, you know, those are the companies I like to sell. Those are the ones that, you know, I always say, if you see something on the shelf at Elixir, it's because I've, I've done the research and that's yeah. how I built that collection. And those are the companies I work with in, in consulting too. Like I've, I have a shameless self plug. I'm I'm a yeah. um, I'm a part of a of a spirits company called Kokoro Spirits, and um, my friend Howard started this thing, and I came on board because he built something really cool. It's a it's a B Corp. Uh, we're we're basically an American independent bottler across spirit categories, and we started with a Blanco tequila that um, that I helped select, and and we won a gold at San Francisco on that, and then. We uh, we macerated agave in that for ten days, and we launched that as a limitada, and that is excellent and available now at CocoroSpirits.com. And then last year we went to Kentucky, and Howard said to me, "Like, what should we do next?" And I said, "Let's do a blended American whiskey. Let's not. I don't want to do a bourbon. There's so much bourbon. Let's do a really cool, unique blend of American whiskeys that has a unique flavor profile." And we we hired. Um, um, Ashley and Monica at the Spirits Group in Kentucky to help us source the whiskeys and blend them. And we put out a really good four grain blend of three different whiskeys that, that we got. And that's available now. And we're going to work on a rum next and, and uh, we're going to put out more tequila and more whiskey. And so that's a really fun project. And it's, it's got all of yeah. the hallmarks of the things I look for in the, in the whiskeys I buy. And so, that's well, a and I also, I also think, H, you're going back to your roots of craft cocktails, except you're doing it with single spirits. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you're making, you know, and, and that's the passion. Yeah. And, you know, I eventually, again, moving from my focus from building the bar's cocktail renown to building its whiskey renown, I look at it that way. Like, and I became more of a straight spirits drinker than a cocktail drinker because I look at a well produced spirit as being so having all, all of that complexity that a well-built cocktail has, but with a well-built mm -hmm. cocktail, it's all about taking, it's like blending. It's just, it's about taking a bunch of unique ingredients and blending them at the right ratios in order to create an end product that is ultimately the sum of its parts, but, but a greater thing than, than each of the individual components. And a well-made spirit is like that, whether it's a straight distillate or a blend. It's all about bringing all those those parts together. And, you know, a really complex straight distillate that's not blended, a single barrel or anything like that, is ultimately that much more interesting because the process of creating it is so complex. And it's not well, just, I, you know, I need this because it's a little sweeter and it's going to bump up the sweet profile. You get that sweetness or you get that level based on fermentation and aging and selection and cuts and, you know. Well, you you know, I, I got to wrap this up because, but I, I tell you, we, we got to have another discussion. And, and when you were saying all that, that to me is Black Adder. That's why I love drinking Black oh, Adder whiskey, <laughs> you know, because whatever they're doing, you know, they started with great stuff, but they just make it magical. And it's, it's it's straight from it's straight boom they don't even mess with it char carl every everything's in there the whole kit uh, it's like a it's like a shake me up 
<laughs> but, you know, I remember, again, going back to when I was traveling the country with Square One, I went to Boston in the middle of winter and I was there to, to you know, build the market. And I got sent to Federal Spirits in Government Center. And I fr- Joe, I forget his name, that had that, that store. I walked in that store and it was butt cold, like <laughs> so cold. And it was the first time I discovered what unchilled filtered was because everything in there was unchilled filtered. And he had the rights to black adder and he had all these black adders and I'm there to sell him vodka and he's tasting me on these whiskeys. And I think I, I got a Kalila and I got some, some crazy stuff. I walked out of there having spent like $500 on black adder. And (laughs) that was probably 2007. And those bottles ended up on the shelf at Elixir for like eight, six, eight years because Nobody knew what they were, and I was the only one drinking them. And people still don't because there are a lot to take. You have to really take your time with them. I mean, they're not like there's depths and, and angles and, and rabbit holes and everything when you open one of those. Well, at the same was <laughs> at the same time, I was introduced to Gordon McPhail and and yeah. met Michael Urquhart, and you know, I mean, you know, my favorite one of my favorite independent bottlers like Black Adder, and I started collecting all these different independent bottlers. And those are the most difficult thing to sell because nobody still gets it. Nobody still knows no. what they are. They see the brand and they're like, they're like Black Adder. I'm like, it's a Cal- been, No, it's Black Adder. No, it's a Kalila. <laughs> yeah. I've been buying the signatory vintages on auction. I mean, I just got a Jura 27. I got a Macallan 29. You know, wow. I love the independent bottlers because that to me is, a, is an experience. Oh, yeah. So, H, I got to wrap it up. Alrighty. I appreciate you, my friend. I That's really, really appreciate fun. you coming on. And I want to do another one with you and we can de- maybe go down the rabbit hole of independence because I yeah. think that's a whole rabbit hole that people just need to be educated on because these are incredibly passionate individuals and companies that source some of the best whiskey in the world and add their twist to it. Or Absolutely. sometimes don't even twist. They just, you know, they... They just pour it straight out and put it in a bottle and say, hey, this is what it is before anyone touches it or tries to make 100 bottles into 400 bottles. This is like the purest form of it. Yeah. And um, one of the fun things when customers come in, they're like, do you have any other McCallum? Actually, McCallum's not a great example for independence, but you know, they're looking for something and like, do you have any others? And you pull some off the, off the shelf and they're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's just a 27-year-old Jura. That's <laughs> all cool. Well, I appreciate that. you, my friend. Listeners, I definitely, you know, I know there's a there's a couple of plugs that H put in here. H, you want to, how do they get hold of you? Where do they see you? You want to end uh, up with a couple of extra plugs in there? Yeah, sure. Um, you can always reach me at h at elixirsf.com, E-L-I-X-I-R-S-F. Um, my bar, uh, just give you the Instagram, elixir is at elixirsf. My consulting company is at Cocktail Ambassadors. My mixer company is at Fresh Victor Cocktails or freshvictor.com, kokorospirits.com, uh, at kokorospirits. And I'm also uh, about to launch, I didn't even get to mention, I'm, I'm about to help relaunch Cyrus Noble Bourbon from Haas Brothers. We, we did a big project. We're, we're going to be, be putting a big push on that into 2023, a great bourbon uh, currently made at Bardstown Bourbon Company. Historic Love brand. that. Love that. Well, you heard it all here, everybody. I appreciate you tuning in. H, you and I are definitely going to do another long chat. I appreciate Absolutely. you, my friend. Thank you for taking the time today. Absolutely. Really. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you.